0: of the manta cares podcast we are a global community of caregivers survivors and patients anybody impacted by the cancer experience over the last many weeks now we have launched our podcast thank you so much for listening in so far Uh, we've gotten phenomenal feedback and are excited to continue bringing on incredible guests to this podcast the goal of the podcast and manta cares is to create new content actionable content design tools and resources that can help you on your experience battling any complex disease, especially as a caregiver. And without further ado, I am incredibly excited to have Dr. Nirav Shah as our guest on this podcast. I met Dr. Nirav Shah. I'm not going to call him Dr. Shah. I'm sorry. I'm going to call him Nirav for the rest of our podcast. Um, I met him now a few years ago while uh, at Stanford University. He had just joined as a senior scholar at the Clinical Excellence Research Center, where I was also a researcher. And ever since our first meeting, I I knew that he was going to become an incredibly important pillar of support, guidance, advice, and friendship over the next many, many years. So it is my distinct honor to have him uh, join us today. Hi, Nirav.
1: Hi, Samira. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Nirv, so we can maybe start with that very fortunate meeting that I am incredibly grateful for uh, many years ago now. So I remember you telling me, I think in the first meeting, about your desire and goals to work in the space of caregiving.
1: Yeah, so I had just joined Stanford about a year and a half ago when we first met, I think. And uh, I spent the first year thinking about what I should do with my life. I'd been lucky to have some roles in the public sphere, in the private sphere, on the insurance side, on the doctor's side in large health systems. Um, And it was now time to do some more important research and, and focus in deeply on a problem. And the Clinical Excellence Research Center is all about how do you lower the cost of great care? And over the past decade, they had done impactful work on areas such as end of life, Um, chronic kidney disease, and many other topics where they'd focus deeply with some scholars and fellows and understand it fully and see how they could solve some of the most difficult problems simultaneously solving for higher quality, lower cost, and broad impact. Um, I I had gone through three or four different areas by that time, and, and finally I heard about this thing called caregiving, and I you know, young, I'd never been a caregiver before. And I started talking to all my friends. And it seems like actually most of us have either been a caregiver uh, or will be a caregiver at some point in our lives. And it was a silent epidemic. I learned from the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, that unpaid family caregivers are responsible for about $500 billion, that's billion with a B dollars of care every year that they're not paid for. So fully 2.5% of our GDP in America is silent. It's it's invisible. And whose job was it to think about these caregivers? It wasn't the hospitals. It wasn't the insurance companies. It wasn't employers. And ultimately it was just getting harder and harder. And this was pre-pandemic. So I thought there's got to be a way that we start to think about these invisible people and help them and help ourselves and help our society and be much more kind and generous and do what we all need is to support one another.
0: I, I love I love how you framed it, the invisible problem, the invisible people. I, I think that was exactly the goal for us at Manta Cares as well, because as a patient, it's it is the invisible caregivers. It is your parent, your sibling, your child, your uh, friend, your community member who really stands up and, and takes on the burden of care, especially as I'm imagining you're at, at some point you're gonna talk about moving care into the home. Especially as care moves into the home, I, I think that burden is sort of shifting further and further onto these invisible people. So given that you love this problem now and you've been looking at it for at least a couple of years, What are some of the key findings there? What have you found? So $500 I heard, 2.5% of our GDP. What what else have you been um, finding?
1: Well, the problem was only getting much worse. For the last few decades in America, we've been talking about this thing called value-based care. And what value-based care means is that we're not going to be paying for things one at a time. We're going to be paying for improvements in outcomes and overall care. So the example is, let's say you're going to a hospital for a hip replacement surgery. In the old days, you get paid for every single thing that the hospital charge. If, if you happen to use five sponges in, a, in the surgery they charge you for five sponges, depending on the complications, the time, the number of days in the hospital, all of those things added up to very large bills. And in an effort to rein in costs, we've started to say, you know what, hospitals, we're not going to pay you for every single piece of thing you provide. We are going to pay you for 90 days before, 90 days after the hip replacement, a lump sum, call it $25,000. And all you have to do is do whatever you want, but you have to guarantee that the patient can walk once again at the end of those 90 days or whatever measures and outcomes we decide upon. What that meant was that hospitals suddenly realized that staying five, seven, 10 days in the hospital doesn't make sense because it costs them $5,000 a day in the hospital. Why don't we shift cost and shift care to unpaid family caregivers, to non-unionized family caregivers? And so those five-day stays became three-day stays, became one-day stays, became four-hour stays for a hip replacement So you're telling me you're sending grandpa home after four hours of a surgery back to the unpaid granddaughter who's taken a week off from work, flown across the country to care for grandpa and help him in his recovery. She's not trained. She doesn't know what to do. She's terrified. Good luck with that because that's what value-based care initially meant. And what happened was that people started getting readmitted. These burdens on caregivers were just too much to ask for. And so what we've learned now is there are ways that you can actually care for the caregiver, that granddaughter who's flown in from across the country, that will improve outcomes, the the burden on her, the strain, the, the psychological stress, and improve outcomes for the patient, grandpa with the hip replacement, simultaneously, while... Reducing readmissions, keeping people healthy without getting infections, getting them back to their original function and form that they wanted in the first place. And suddenly, it's become everyone's job. Suddenly, because we're starting to capture and quantify this, the hospital itself will say, you know what? We're going to redefine what counts as healthcare, And we're going to include meals for the patient and the caregiver for the first full week after surgery. So they'll pay for Uber Eats or they'll pay for meal delivery so that you can actually not worry about that and focus on getting better. They'll pay for things like transportation. Instead of worrying how to get back and forth from the hospital and parking, maybe they'll cover a few Uber or Lyft rides. And those kinds of things have redefined what counts as healthcare in the box of value-based care. So finally, we're creating the solutions that reduce burden, improve outcomes, and lower total cost of care. It's a win-win-win for everyone, but we need a lot more research on that. So that's where my research is focused is, first of all, quantify those burdens. What what happens to caregivers? What happens to patients and their family members? And once you can put a dollar sign on it, suddenly people start caring and saying, ah, I can afford to do this, or I need to do this. I
0: can't afford not to do this. So so Nirav, I, I wear a couple of hats, right? So if I wear my researcher hat, if I wear my historic hat, clinical excellence research center hat, everything you said makes so much sense to me. As a patient and as a caregiver, every time I hear dollar signs is driving my care, I get the like goosebumps. But I do think it's a reality of the experience that we we are going through. And my sort of thought here is In this research that we're doing, it sounds like the providers are driving a lot of it. The providers, your doctors, your hospitals are driving a lot of it. It sounds like the insurance companies are probably a key stakeholder in there. The academic centers, the researchers of the world are absolutely critical. I'm wondering from your lens is, are patients involved in research? Are caregivers involved in this research? Or are they also silent in that dynamic?
1: I think we're finally understanding the value of patient and family-centered care. What what does that mean? Patient and family-centered care means in the past, the whole system, if you even could call healthcare a system, was designed around the needs of a doctor. The doctor would admit the patient with the hip replacement and have the whole system optimized around his, invariably his, needs. So at four in the morning, he could go through a ward of patients who'd gone through the hip replacement the day before and spend a few minutes with each one, one at a time and then move on to the next task that he needs. So it was a system, think of it like uh, one of Henry Ford's conveyor belts designed for the doctor. But now we're realizing that actually that doesn't meet the needs of patients. It's not the optimal place. And actually folks do want to recover in the comforts of their homes if they have the right support services. So if, you know, one of the jokes I like to make is that what is the hospital acquired infection rate when you're recovering at home? (laughs) Zero, right? You're not going to get the infection from the person in the next bed because you're recovering in the safety and comfort of your own home, surrounded by your own germs, your own Mm -hmm. pets, you know, and and your own family members. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: with the right supports and services in this new consumer or retail focused healthcare environment everyone is saying wait a second it's not about you doctor and what's convenient for you i don't want to be woken up at 3am for labs so that you can then look at me at 6 and decide based on that for the rest of the day on my lab results what i'm going to do no i want this to be on my terms for my needs and so that whole shift from the hospital to the home means that we're now changing the lens to focus on the patient and the caregiver and the family and the community supports that allow that to happen.
0: That's a phenomenal answer. Uh, there's so much that i unpack, but maybe I can uh, share a uh, French proverb that I stumbled across in prep- preparing for this podcast. I'm not gonna do it in French, I do not speak French, but the loose translation is the more things change, the more things stay the same. So in the last few minutes, what I've heard you say and describe is there are things that are shifting, these large shifts that are happening across how we conceive of healthcare, how we think about value-based care, the move from physician-focused care to patient-focused care, the importance of the caregiver, the silent player in our healthcare ecosystem is going up. Hospitals are recognizing the need for support services to empower this, we're redefining what cost of care means to include supportive services. But what has not changed?
1: Well, you know, it's a pendulum. I'm, I'm making a story about how important it is to move care into the home. Well, I think that's what we used to call house calls a few decades ago, right? It used to be normal that the doctor came to you in your home. And actually, outside of America, that is still the norm in many other countries. So what we're finding is that we're reinventing and rediscovering what used to work. It made a lot of sense. If you can get care in your context, people can give you much more tailored, personalized care which meets your needs rather than, oh, I want you to change your diet in the following four ways. I want you to do this kind of physical activity and all. And then they come to your home and say, oh, no, that means we gave you recipes you don't even understand. We gave you activities that are not possible in your neighborhood because it's not safe to go for a walk uh, like we want you to so to the extent that we're rediscovering the past but then understanding the value of it and capturing that we're actually not seeing change what we're seeing is change back um, hmm. to the past which hmm. is a good thing
0: that, that's very beautifully said I, I never thought of it that way it's uh, rediscovering the past and revaluing kind of the principles of healthcare that we started with, um, which really is around patient-centered care, caregiver-centered care in the context of the life you live, which I think is a very powerful concept. Um, One of the things that I know you to be a genius at is identifying frameworks and mental models. Um, I've known that about you ever since I first met you. Uh, I think you've done it with me many, many times across many different projects of ours. and I really think it's one of the things that you are incredibly good at. And my question to you is, so far we've talked about hip replacements. We've spoken about caregiving in this sort of broad context. A lot of our listeners are grappling with cancer. They're caring for someone with cancer. They are either ex- have experienced it or they're a survivor of it. What are the mental models that we can learn from caregiving in this broad brushstrokes, hip replacements, caring for an aging parent that can be applied to the cancer experience?
1: So many, let me give you one good one that I think um, was an eye opener for me. Alex Drain is a good friend of mine who is a caregiver and mom and uh, started the caregiving enterprise called Archangels and she studies caregiver burden. And one of the things she likes to talk about is that as a caregiver, you have to think about what they say in an airplane. In an airplane, when you're sitting there, one of the first messages that's broadcast for everyone is that should the oxygen masks fall, put the oxygen mask on yourself before helping your child or loved one. And as caregivers, we often forget that, right? We are doing everything in our power to help our vulnerable loved one, and at huge cost to ourselves. That kind of cost has a toll. The research we've done at Stanford so far has shown that this cost and burden can last decades in terms of psychological impact, in terms of total cost of care, in terms of your own health burdens, in terms of having heart attacks, in terms of dying young as a caregiver. That kind of impact can be averted. And that's the the, the lesson here is take care of yourself so you can better take care of your loved one as well. Don't ignore your own needs, your own health exams, your own clinic visits, your own medications, your own respite, your own going for a walk every day, your own journaling time, whatever it takes to take care of yourself first, then only can you be the most effective in caring for your loved one.
0: That's uh, incredibly powerful, Nirav. I, I absolutely hear that. Um, my my, <laughs> It's something that I've told a lot of the people who, we get a lot of calls nowadays from people who are grappling uh, with cancer. And it is something that we've said over and over again, but in order to act on it, I think it's really hard. I think it's so easy to forget your needs. And um,
1: I, I don't- It feels like almost this. selfish at times. <laughs>
0: Exactly. I I do think it feels selfish. And I don't mean to be gendered about this, but a lot, and and I'm sure you have the data on this, but I imagine a lot of the caregivers are women.
1: Oh, the vast, well, actually, it's interesting with with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's shifted a bit. and, And there are many younger and male caregivers as well. But the stereotype is still true. It's a woman in the sandwich generation who's often caring for one or more children of her own and uh, older parents or in-laws at the same time and trying to keep it all together and neglecting her own health. That is a useful archetype because if you think about her and what she needs, um, that's very generalizable to many other caregivers.
0: So maybe we can unpack that because I think that that is a really useful archetype and it is one that's emotionally very close to my heart. I'm I'm not quite there yet, but I know my mom was. And having seen her honestly care for myself while going through cancer, I can tell you that she did not take care of herself. And I know that she is grappling with her own, actually to the point you made, a burden of health now once we're out of active treatment. And I think that archetype, if we sort of peel back the layers a little bit there, so they are the science generation. They're usually carrying on two dimensions at least. So a Lily parent, their own kid, then they are also have their own risk of disease. Um, presumably, if they're in the signage generation, they're grappling with menopause, they're grappling with their own sort of comorbidities, depending on kind of where you are and what your health profile looks like. Is there any tools, tips, resources that you know of that might help this archetype? better manage they have all of these balls in the air they're juggling all of this they're terrified of one dropping There's, i would imagine shame in something dropping there's guilt if something drops i think it's really hard to put on that oxygen mask first so is there anything there that you know that we can point them to that we can help them with
1: there's many resources now available on the internet to help you find communities to help you find resources to even potentially get you paid to become a paid caregiver for your own family member, for example. Groups including the Benjamin Rose Institute out of Ohio, um, the um, Rosalind Carter Institute out of Georgia, uh, the John A. Hartford Foundation, AARP, all have extensive resources for caregivers. Now, they may not all be tailored for oncology or cancer care, but there are a lot of generalizable tools and, and models. One of the ideas that I think um, has really taken gotten some traction is finding communities of caregivers. Are there other people, whether through the hospital, through the cancer center or otherwise, finding supportive people who've walked in your shoes? And I'm not talking about patient groups, I'm talking about caregiver groups. What that does is you get in a group of maybe 10 or 12 people You don't instantly become best friends with everyone, but you may find one or two or three who you can relate to and you can support and they can support you back. And that is not only allowed sanctioned, it's actually encouraged because there are many ancillary benefits as well. Not only does the physical, uh, does the mental support of someone who hears your story or understands what you're going through help, but there's also navigating the system right? Maybe they've gone through and gotten that prior off for that specific second opinion that you want. All those other things that you're going to have to deal with that the healthcare system throws at you as you try to get through your journey, someone somewhere has been through. And so now there's a number of online communities. I found Facebook to have a number of great caregiving, uh, caregiver-focused groups. And elsewhere, depending on what your needs are, you can get as involved or as little involved as you'd like. But I, I encourage you to seek those out early in the course, and if you're uh, a patient, encourage your family member, caregiver, to do the same.
0: So for the record, I did not plant that seed. That was Nero on his own. Manta Cares, that is our goal. It is to build a community for caregivers for cancer, but I did not plant it for what it's worth. Uh, thank you, Nero for that <laughs> unaided endorsement. Um, there is something you said, though, that I want us to maybe unpack a little bit. Um, I think in the sort of list of resources, which we will link to in the show notes, but in the list of resources, one of the things you mentioned is you can start to get paid for being a caregiver. Can we unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, many states have understood that there is an immense need for it, that the uh, home health and other communities of workers are very underpaid, and there's just not enough folks to, to provide that care, especially with some episodic or other kinds of caregiving needs. The, the supply and demand mismatch is huge. So, from one state to the next, there are programs which we'll link to in the show notes as well. For example, I know the California one pretty well, where it's just signing up through an administrative process, showing some data, sharing some notes, and you can start getting paid regularly for your caregiver duties, um, for your loved one, in your own home even. And that has been a savior for many folks who've had to quit their jobs, who may not be able to make the choice that they want to be a caregiver because of financial or other issues. And uh, we'll link to several really good resources.
0: Thank you. Um, I think that would be really important. Um, Do you know of any that are cancer specific? I'm guessing not.
1: I haven't explored it, but we can certainly look into it.
0: Okay. That was my thinking because one of the things that I know has come up a few times, it actually goes back to our archetype. It goes back to the time of generation, especially in today's day and age when a lot of these largely women are also working. So to grapple then with work, with caring for young kids, with your elderly aging parent, and then God forbid a sick parent or child, or spouse, that additional productivity hit with work grappling the day-to-day job that you are now being paid for becomes really difficult. So do you know if that-
1: So the the Paid Family Leave Act is the uh, the lowest bar. Um, But when you're, for example, our, our society hasn't caught up to understand the needs. If you have a baby, today Netflix will give you one year of paid time off. Now what happens if you're caring for a spouse with cancer? You don't get a year off that's paid, right? And our society means well, but hasn't caught up there. The, the, the point of these kinds of um, the Netflix policy, for example, is to keep women in the workforce, right? It's to make sure that talented folks can find ways to balance life and career, but they forget about other caregiver duties. And so we're, we're starting to catch up. We're starting to understand that government has a role in potentially subsidizing uh, paid family leave beyond the minimum, that some states have actually taken it further and that we actually have an opportunity to rethink what being a caregiver means beyond the well-known archetype of the mom into all of these other places. Cancer is also something that's relatively ignored. People understand for older adults, for seniors, uh, a spouse caring for someone with Alzheimer's, that's been studied for 30 years with randomized trials. Oncology, not as much as, as Alzheimer's. Uh, I would suspect that there's a lot more people who've suffered from cancer than from Alzheimer's and yet the, the research hasn't caught up. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for our policies and regulations to catch up. Um, the, the Paid Family Leave Act is one example where we're trying to push the bar. Uh,
0: thank you for sharing that. That's That's exactly what I was hoping we would get out of it, right? Because there are a couple of resources if you are in that archetype. There is, if you're in a state that has these programs, you can get access to some amount of money to help you cover your needs. There's a paid family uh, leave act. So if you are someone, at least it's to your point, a low bar, but it's there. Um, So I do think that there are, I think to your point, society's catching up, but having been in those shoes, it was rough. It was definitely rough.
1: Yeah, unless you're with a great employer who gets it, it's uh, hit or miss. And actually, that's why some of the research we're doing at Stanford now at the Clinical Excellence Research Center is focused on the Danish registries, where we have uh, almost 40 years of data on women uh, wow. across the country, literally all their electronic health records, their <laughs> taxes paid, their job classifications, um, wow. everything. And so we've published studies now already on the 20, 30 year impact of being a caregiver in terms of the physical Mm -hmm. toll, the mental health toll, the total cost of care. Mm -hmm. Our next paper that will be forthcoming is about the workforce impacts about being a caregiver, uh, being a caregiver impacts your total wage earning potential and how it impacts it over the next 20 years. So I'm not going to give away any answers. All right. Let me, uh, let me just teaser say it's six figures or more in terms of your wage impact as a mom um, of a child with major congenital abnormality. So there's huge burdens that society, even like Denmark, uh, the the, the Scandinavians have very generous paid leaves and, uh, and other policies in place. And even there, the impact can be seen. So as a society, when we bring those studies to America, we will see even exponential opportunities for rethinking our regulatory approaches and policies for paying for time off.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Wow, that's, that's, I think I'm so staggered. I don't have words. (laughs) Um, One of the things, Nirav, that uh, I've been thinking a lot about is 10x thinking, where you kind of out and you, you force yourself to think, if this were true, tenfold bigger, tenfold bigger, what, what, what does that look like? And at some point, your imagination uh, catches up and dreams get pretty wild and pretty large. And so, so the thing that we've been grappling with at MantaCare is, is a hot experiment. If we were wildly successful, what would the world look like? And the answer that we've been coming to is every year, at least in the U.S., you have 1.9 million new cancer patients. And for every cancer patient, I would argue, and there is not that much data I have looked, on how many caregivers get impacted. Now, to argue that at least one person, there's at least someone in your immediate network, if not more, who is also being impacted by that diagnosis. So every year, you have 1.9 into 2, at least, people who are being impacted by cancer. And in our dreams of being wildly successful, our hope is that when you get diagnosed, you do get access to this community where you can find your tribe. You can find people who are grappling with the context of life life that you're, you're in, but also you get access to tangible tools and resources that allow you to make the cancer experience just a little easier. So my question to you is if you are wildly successful in the next decade of your life, What does the world look like?
1: Well, my approach has always been about, first of all, mapping the space that I'm working in, understanding who all the different players are, what the priorities are, what are the beliefs folks have, and what are some of the wrong beliefs people have, and then starting to create the evidence to start to change the the whole ecosystem. So in the caregiver space, for example, I think a lot of the effort has been about focusing on individuals, their emotions, their experience. And as a result, a lot of it has been anecdotal. We know that the burdens are incredible, but you just know one person at a time. And you can definitely connect with the heart to that story, but we also need to connect to the mind. So much about caregiving is one-on-one, but if you add up the one, two, three, four, five, suddenly it adds up to a billion dollars or five hundred billion dollars, right? So what I have been spending time is trying to create the evidence that appeals to the mind, in addition to to supplement, to complement all the evidence that already exists that appeals to the heart. If you can get the bean counters who can scale the caring for caregivers programs, who can say. Every patient at Stanford with a new diagnosis is going to have a family caregiver handed a Manta planner and joining a cancer care community. How would they do that? Well, their calculus is based on a spreadsheet with numbers. We need to show the ROI, the return on investment of spending the money for a Manta planner to them, and what it means in terms of their net promoter score and brand awareness and all these other things that we don't think about when we think about caregivers. If we can create that evidence, that's a smart thing to do. That's how we will get the scale. So that's why I'm so excited that you get an NIH grant to study the Manta Planner community at scale. And then it's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. My goal is to help you and others like you in the caregiving community create those 10X, 50X, 100X startups. That's where I think a lot of energy is. The excitement, the outside capital flows come in when you have that opportunity for such efficiencies. But it's about not just telling your story with anecdotes. It's about telling your story with data. I think we're getting there.
0: I love that. Telling your story with data, not just anecdotes. I think that is such a phenomenal... Uh, summary of today's podcast. Um, So my last closing question to you is one of the pieces of advice you've given me, and you've given me a lot of key things. Our our conversations have marked pivotal moments in my life. And one of our early conversations had you giving me the guidance of setting up a personal advisory board. And um, I'm going to paraphrase this, but the personal advisory board is, imagine if you're running a company, you have your scientific advisory board, you have your actual board, the personal advisory board is a group of people who care deeply about you, but are also willing to tell you truth when it matters and are there for those pivotal moments in life, both and professional. And um, you have been one of my people for many years now. My question and closing question to you is for our listeners, for the caregivers listening to this podcast, Is there something we can leave them with that allows them to take it away and have that pivotal moment in their life?
1: If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably just had one of those pivotal moments in the recent past. Either you or a loved one near you has had a diagnosis or a major change. It's the choices you make now that are going to determine what happens three months, six months, a year, five years from now. Um, I was shocked to hear on your first podcast that cancer has been a good thing for you, Samira, that you've used this to really rediscover who you are and focus and find your purpose. Um, It makes perfect sense, but it's because of your advisory board, your family, the supports you had, the environment you surrounded yourself in, the incredible heroics of your brothers, your mom, your dad, you know, all those people who care around you that helped you become who you are becoming. To the extent that I think for all of our listeners, they are now in the middle of it. Um, I encourage you to get help. I encourage you to ask around, to raise your hand and say, this is what's going on. Does anyone else know what I should do? Is there anyone else out there? I would be shocked if no one else came to their aid. And there are so many resources. I will help you populate um, some other resources in this show notes for those caregivers who are at those pivotal moments so that they can say, this is how I understand where I am. This is my network of support. This is what I need to do next. And and start to think like a corporation, Corporation you of, okay, where are we today? Where do we need to go? How do we get there? And how do we take care of everyone along the way?
0: I absolutely love that. Thank you so much Nira, for that beautiful beautiful parting thought and thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for being on my personal advisory board and being one of my core core people for so many years now so thank you
1: it's mutual samir thank you
0: this podcast show notes and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.